Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Over the past few decades, colleges and universities across America have become big businesses, and along the way, they've made some of our major cities into the equivalents of company towns. Although they bring together a diversity of thought, people, and culture, uh, what effect do they have on the non-students who live in their areas? For his latest book, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, how universities are plundering our cities. Devarian L. Baldwin, a leading urbanist, historian, and cultural critic, conducted over 100 interviews with city leaders, with low-wage workers who tend to students' needs, and local activists who are fighting encroachment to reveal an increasingly parasitic relationship between universities and the neighborhoods they gentrify, benefiting a few while making many more vulnerable. It's published by Bold Type Books, and I'm pleased to welcome Devarian L. Baldwin, the Paul E. Rather Distinguished Professor of American Studies and, and Founding Director of the Smart Cities Lab at Trinity College, to our show now. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. In the introduction to your book, you write about the Checkerboard Lounge, a famous blues club that was located in Bronzeville, which is a largely black neighborhood in the south side of Jamaica. I mean, of, of Jamaica, of Chicago. Um, yeah. What was uh, its relationship to the University of Chicago? Um, its relationship originally was it was because the University of Chicago had uh, demolished a significant portion of its retail and nightlife that surrounded the campus in the 50s and 60s at the height of urban renewal. Um, the Bronzeville neighborhood to the north, the historically black neighborhood, was the home of the Checkerboard Lounge. And so in those years of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you had a number of students and faculty who wanted to have a um, you know Chicago experience and and you know have fine nightlife. And so they found their way to the Checkerboard Lounge. And as- Where a lot of famous musicians played. Uh, yeah. Muddy Waters, the Muddy Rolling Waters, Stones, Coco Eric Taylor, Rolling Stones, Eric Coco Clapton. Taylor, yeah. Yeah, it was a blue shrine. It was a Mecca mm. for both international and national blues tourists, as well as local, um, local, you know, blues aficionados. It was the place to be if you wanted to get the blues experience. It was co-owned by the blues great Buddy Guy. Was it falling apart? Well, um, I talked to people who were involved, who were connected to it, and they said that there was a problem with the roof. And they believed that this was a small fix and that they were already working with L.C. Thurman, the owner, to make the repairs or to make arrangements to make the repairs. And then the next thing they know, they saw in, in the news uh, headlines, um, had read that the University of Chicago has come in to save the Checkerboard Lounge. That was the new statement publicly. They were shocked. But actually, they were suggesting that it be moved to another place. Well, yeah, by savior, and, and this is interesting, they use the language of, of kind of black historic preservation, um, but what they were actually doing was that they were taking, picking up the lounge and moving it to uh, the Harper Court commercial district that they had begun to develop um, in the, the late 90s and the 2000s um, in the Hyde Park neighbor, campus neighborhood. And so, as I said before, because of the period of urban renewal, when they had gotten rid of so much commercial um, nightlife and retail and recreation, um, they turned back around and by the 90s, people were coming back into the cities. People wanted city life. People wanted an urbane experience. Um, and most suburbanites, when they talked about an urbane experience, what they were really talking about was like a campus, a college experience. So, you know, uh, fully wired, 
uh, coffee shops, museums, uh, um, lectures, um, you know, dense uh, walkability density. So, so like a campus. And so as the campus became the model for cities, um, you Chicago looked around and said they, they were called flat footed. They didn't have any of those things. Um, they were people at, in the nineties, they were people that still um, wore t-shirts um, in Hyde Park neighborhood that said University of Chicago, the place where fun comes to die. And so when they <laughs> saw this new development um, and things going on, they're like, we need to do something. And so their thoughts was let's grab, our students are already going to the checkerboard lounge. Let's grab it and put it into our new Harper court development. Um, as a way to keep money and people on our campus, keep the money circulating on our campus. And but you wrote that the school had either demolished black neighborhoods or built institutional walls to keep black residents away from campus for almost a century by that mm. time. Uh, there were protests. Uh, and um, one of the people you write about is a man named Bernard Lloyd. Yeah. Um, uh, what role did he play in the controversy over moving the checkerboard lounge south of Hyde Park? Well, Bernard Lloyd, he actually um, his his relationship to kind of, you know, town and gown or city universities and the cities had gone back some time. He was a, a graduate of MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And after that, he was on the alumni board um, on the board of trustees, the alumni member. And so he had saw directly after graduating from college, um, uh, excuse me, um, Harvard and MIT's expansion into Cambridge in the greater Boston area. So he said that, you know, these town gown relationships were not new to him, but then he moved to um, Chicago um, to work for the white shoe uh, consulting firm, McKinsey and company. So, you know, it was odd and it was odd that he would make a decision to live on the hard scrabble blocks of the South side of Chicago. South side became code for black and poor. And, but he's, he was, he was, um, an African-American. Um, actually, he lived in uh, Liberia before he came to go to school. It was a mixed race, actually. Yeah, mother mixed was German. Race. Mother was German and his father was a, a former war, uh, a military vet who lived in Germany, met in Germany. Um, he, he grew up in Liberia. So he came um, with that experience, with a worldly experience. So he went to MIT, saw the relationships that were happening there. He got a job in Chicago. He decided to move on the South side and he ended up just steps away from the checkerboard lounge. So it had a very um, intimate and personal relationship for him. And, but he also came with all this, this cultural capital, this, this, this degree from MIT, this background of having been on the board of trustees. And so when he saw this going on, he was outraged. He turned from being an executive to being a community activist. And so he and others are part of this larger organization called Restoring Bronzeville, because in the 90s, um, Bronzeville advocates had looked at the checkerboard lounge as being the anchor piece for what they wanted to do um, was to ignite or reignite kind of um, black heritage tourism. And they considered the checkerboard lounge to be a central piece of that. And so when the, when the University of Chicago came in and swooped up and took it and moved to the Hyde Park, they were outraged. And they were on the campus leading protests, charging cultural piracy. But as you point out, this is not unique to Chicago. Does it usually affect communities of color? Well, many ur um, urban universities, um, for, you know, by nature of history, are located in um, community, working class communities 
or communities of color. And many times when they were, they had a role in the 50s and 60s of being serving as the friendly face of urban renewal, it was because of the um, growing migration of black and Latinx residents into the surrounding areas. So as you said earlier, they usually fortified and turned inward. But as cities became hip and, and, and hot again in the 90s and 2000s, they wanted to get in the game and they had to expand outward. And they did so into what were now predominantly black and Latinx neighborhoods. Now, the nature of that is important because these because of a history of race and redlining and the, and the devaluing of black communities in terms of real estate. Um, these neighborhoods, the, the, the properties in these neighborhoods was relatively cheap and the communities that were there were politically vulnerable, which made it easier for universities to gobble up land, to create um, uh, ex- extended um, footprints of their campuses in these neighborhoods. And, um, you know, these neighborhoods pushed back, but there was not always, there was very little they could do with it because there was this point of interest convergence between city leaders and university administrators. As people, go ahead, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, well, along those lines, uh, you're, you're suggesting that the, a school represents more than just campus buildings. Uh, the area becomes attractive to developers of all kinds. That's right. But many times developers would not go into these neighborhoods. They were seen as no fly zones, you know, because of mm-hmm. the neighborhood, because it might have been violence because of the poverty. But because universities, they're not nimble. They, they can't they're not, they can't move easily. Um, they decided to invest in these neighborhoods for their own interests. Um, but you also. And, yeah, go ahead. You also uh, I'm wondering, wouldn't city governments see new development as a good thing, a boost to the tax base? Although you do point out that Yale University's multi-million dollar tax exemption uh, uh, contributed to the budget deficit in New Haven, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. That's right. Are most so, of universities tax exempt around the country? Yes. Uh, um, you know, based on the, um, them being designated as 401c3s, as nonprofit entities, um, in all states in the union, universities are property tax exempt. Um, and so to go back to your, your, your first point, um, there's, this, there's this interest convergence between city leaders competing with each other for these young professionals and empty nesters who were interested back, you know, the children of, Ur- of suburban sprawl are now want to be back in the, the back to the city movement. They want to come back and various cities are competing with each other for the tax revenues that would come from these new urbanites. And then on the other side, colleges and universities are, were facing a shrinking contribution from the state to their budgets, sometimes going from 60% um, from st- of state contributions to 20%. So you have this convergence of interest between university leaders and um, uh, city leaders to basically turn large swaths of their cities into a campus as a mechanism for capturing economic value for investors, for these residential returnees, for recreation, for nightlife, to draw students, um, to draw um, laboratories in the new biotech pharmaceutical industries that were taking shape in cities, but also they were finding they were getting free research from universities as well. So all these forces combined to make these um, black and brown and working class neighborhoods, these vulnerable landing sites for this new economy. And while That's universities and cities celebrated the economic impact of this new development, much of the, the economic development was not reaching these neighborhoods and large real estate become a big tax exemption. 
Has the real estate become a big business for universities with some schools now requiring students to live in dorms from, for more than one year? That's right. Uh, that must have had an impact on the communities they're in as well, because the students would, uh, after their freshman year, they would move to uh, some local housing. That's right. So, um, but that goes both ways. But just to get to your to your to the core of your point, is that the real estate component is lucrative because um, the the property tax exemption that comes with any. Um, residents, any property being affiliated with educational purposes, even if what's going on on that property is for profit. And that's what happens with this residence. So basically universities became property managers. They extended their footprint out into these communities. They bought up properties and housing for their own, for their own students and affiliates. And if that could be argued to have educational purposes, that property development was tax exempt. Come, uh, conversely, or in a parallel fashion, as they put these laboratories and these workstations in these neighborhoods, if the argument could be made that they were for educational purposes, those were also tax exempt. But the secret story or the, what's quietest kept is that a lot of times in the new economy, the research and development that was going on in these tax exempt laboratories was being sold to <laughs> private companies. And then yeah. universities were reaping the benefits of royalties and intellectual property rights. So you got for-profit development happening on tax-exempt properties. You tell the the, uh, the story of an experience uh, on the University of Chicago's campus by Brandy Parker, a young black man who grew up on Chicago's South Side. Right. Is, it, is that a typical story? Yeah, it's a story that I heard all across the country that when you have, because a part of the story that, that I'm trying to build out here as we're talking here is that as these campuses expand into these neighborhoods for laboratory development, for real estate expansion, for commercial development to attract researchers, faculty, and their families, they also have ramped up their police forces. And as primarily white parents um, are nervous about their, their children living in these predominantly black and brown neighborhoods, um, they lobby to university administrators to do something. And the solution in many cases was to enact a memorandum of understanding between the university and the city, whereby campus police, armed campus police in most cases, would have jurisdiction over blocks beyond the campus, anywhere that a campus development might exist, or sometimes jurisdiction over whole cities. So you've got quasi-private police that are being governed by university interests that are governing and policing non-university-affiliated residents. And Brandy Parker in the Woodlawn neighborhood on the south side of Chicago is a prime example of this. I talk about him, and he said that he got stopped by the University of Chicago Police Department three, on the average of three times a week. Sometimes they wouldn't even stop the car to jump out and ask him where the guns at, where the drugs at. So that this was his profiling. reality of being racially profiled yeah. um, now, from a, 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 a predominantly white institution's police force in a predominantly black and brown neighborhood. Do they have good relations, these uh, security guards and police and uh, university police forces with the police, the other police, the, the, the city's police? 
In most cases, yes, because they are, you know, they're doing the work of the police officers sure. um, and they are able to get to the scene uh, much more quickly. That 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 you know, uh, city police can re can redirect their budgets um, in other areas or in other ways or actually increase their surveillance of black and brown neighborhoods with the additional layer of university or campus police. So that's definitely a case that they have these relationships. But the difference is that especially private campus police, they are not governed by the Freedom of Information Act laws that mm. are that are required by city police. So here you have uh, private police with public authority, with very little public oversight. When this, when when campus, when the Johns Hopkins um, just two years ago was making the push to build out a private police force, um, Senator Mary Washington in the state of Maryland, and whose jurisdiction is over the area of Johns Hopkins, she described it as putting as like a, a Vatican City in the middle of Baltimore, <laughs> um, because these this police force would only be answerable to the university administration and its board of trustees that the state and the city wouldn't even have the power of the purse to reward good behavior or penalize bad behavior. And this is something that's happening all across the country. And so uh, um, Brandy Parker is an example of someone who's been profiled, but in the case of someone like Samuel DuBose or um, in the case of someone, so this is- well, in, Stephanie in, in, Washington um, and Paul Witherspoon. Right. Stephanie Washington and Paul Witherspoon. Stephanie Washington. Or the case of Jason Washington. So Stephanie Washington, mm-hmm. Yale, or the case of Jason Washington in Portland. These are individuals who are either shot or killed by campus police off campus. Let me uh, take a, a moment to tell my audience that we're listening. You're listening to Let It Open at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM uh, and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm talking with DeVarian Professor DeVarian L. Baldwin about his latest book, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. It's published by Bold Type Books. Uh, I brought up uh, Stephanie Washington, who uh, was with Paul Witherspoon. Uh, mm-hmm. They were a young couple parked near the Yale campus, doing nothing more than singing love songs to each other. And yet, uh, <clears throat> it was tragic. Now, they weren't even on the campus. No, they were, they were a couple of miles away off campus. That's right. But and so there was a suburban the police officer. Police? There was a suburban police officer and a and a Yale police department officer who got the false information that their car had been, had been involved in a robbery. They pulled right up and began firing. Um, thank thankfully, uh, Stephanie um, was. Uh, I'm sorry. They they were only they, they were only grazed. They were not killed. Mm-hmm. But this happened in 2019, and residents. And students began to ask, you know, who do you protect? Who do you serve? And just a couple of years earlier, um, New York Times writer Charles Blow, his son Taj Blow, had gotten slammed down to the ground um, on Yale campus, on the Yale's campus. And then when he got picked back up, they apologized because they 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 came to realize he was a Yale um, affiliate, as if that kind of treatment would have been acceptable for a New Haven resident. And so what were once walls and fortifications of brick and mortar have now been um, replaced with police patrols. But hasn't uh, Yale been credited with making New Haven safer and attracting new industry and development? 
Uh, yes, it has. And that's a mixed story because while they've been um, celebrated for bringing in new realist, new investments, particularly in the pharmaceutical industries and biotech, um, because the work they're doing that's affiliated, the, the work that investors are doing affiliated with Yale, they're using their um, uh, campus properties as a tax and a financial shelter. So the investors, the private investors that are affiliated with Yale and Yale's students and their faculty, they conduct the research and development. That work is being done on campus buildings. And so that provides a tax shelter for these private companies. It's what former mayor Tony Hart called a property tax gray area. Now that we're in the middle of the pandemic, the, the, the dire consequences of that have been ramped up because the property tax exemptions of universities all across the country, the money that would normally go to the city is being kept from directly kept from the needs of public schools and public services like snow and trash removal, um, road maintenance. In the think about the case of Texas, the maintenance of the electrical grid, that there's a direct correlation between the money that the universities don't pay and the diminishing value or, or, or quality of infrastructure in these cities. After so Arizona, last oh yeah, year, during the pandemic, uh, there was a 600-person respect caravan that halted traffic in downtown New Haven because students and community members were saying, Yale, pay your fair share. After Arizona State University built downtown residence high-rises for students in Phoenix, the school spread uh, the idea that downtown was dangerous and, and played on the fears of students who, as you write, quote, had largely grown up in the suburbs, so they equated the city with danger, even though the suburban Tempe campus had higher crime rates. Mm, that's so right. did anyone accuse the school of racism? No one accused the school directly of racism. Um, but what they did say is that this whole idea of security and fear was a powerful way to create a monopoly market. Now, what I mean by that is because they 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 churned out this idea of don't go off campus, they sold the student body to retailers and food service suppliers as a captive market because these students would be discouraged from going anywhere else. So like as you mentioned, as you mentioned earlier, if they were on the residence, if they were residents in residential buildings, they were required to have meal plans. But even if they weren't, um, they were encouraged to eat on campus. They were encouraged to buy their clothing and paraphernalia on campus. And so that became a captive market for those retailers and commercial developers that were affiliated with Arizona State University, as you pointed out. But to add another wrinkle to that story, um, because university land is owned by the Arizona Board of Regents, the, um, the president of the university system, Michael Crow, he realized that, well, the state is not contributing enough money for us right now. So we need to be entrepreneurial and generating money for our own interests. So what he did was he leased out land to private companies and he passed on the tax exemption status of the university to private companies <laughs> like State Farm Insurance. So State Farm Insurance's regional headquarters is the biggest development in the state of Arizona. And it sits and it sits on tax exempt land. And Arizona State passed on that tax exemption to this headquarters. And so and instead, what's happened is that in exchange for the tax exemption, the 
Arizona um, um, uh, State Farm pays Arizona State a smaller fee. And that fee gets to be used by Arizona State for whatever they want without the oversight of the democratic process of the state governance. So, for example, it's not a surprise that Arizona State University's head football coach is a former NFL coach, Herm Edwards of the New York Jets. They had the extra capital to be able to hire a former NFL coach and build a new stadium because of the ways they've used their tax exempt land as a shelter for private entities that include State Farm. It includes hotel companies. It includes retirement communities. They have been able to become this powerful. They become the mo- one of the most powerful real estate developers in the state of Arizona. Now, how long has this been going on? Now, you report that the University of Pennsylvania displaced 600 low-income and African-American families to build a science center in West Philadelphia in the 1960s. That's right. That's, uh, that's what, that's uh, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. That's right. Wait, so more, it's actually, than, more than 40 years ago. Yeah, 60 years ago. Yeah, right. 60 years ago. That's right. Were there um, protests then, or yes, was yes, that just there seen were. the way? So in the in the nineteen fifty, so there there's a powerful shift that happens between the nineteen fifties and sixties, and then what happens in the nineties. In the fifties and sixties, as these communities, as these campus areas were being um, more and more populated by people of color, the response by universities was to fortify themselves, to separate themselves and to demolish these neighborhoods. And that's what happened at UPenn. It also happened at Columbia. It happened at the, um, it happened at Denver. It happened at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. It happened at Cleveland Circle. So what they did was, and they were led by the University of Chicago, they um, created a change to the Housing Act of 1949, whereby any urban development project that was affiliated with a university would get $2 from the federal government for every dollar contributed by the municipality. So this encouraged university-driven urban renewal projects, and they used that to, to, to fortress themselves in from the increasingly black and brown neighborhoods that were surrounding them. But then by the time we get to the 1990s, so first of all, let me say this. In that time period, there was protest. So when Columbia tried, and I know that you're, you're, I think your first, your first broadcast was at Columbia's radio station, right? So yeah. um, Nin- when, Columbia, when Columbia tried to build a gym in the middle of Morningside Park, mm-hmm. um, students and activists charged Jim Crow, G-Y-M, which is a, you know, pretty interesting, <laughs> um, because this, this gym would separate the predominantly black Harlem from the predominantly white Columbia. So there were protests all over the country to these various urban renewal antics that were led by um, urban universities. But then by the time we get to the 90s and 2000s, when people want an urban experience, when students want an urban experience, when researchers want an urban experience, they shift from turning inward to actually buying up properties and expanding their campuses into the very neighborhoods that they had long ignored. So the approach to urban development that's university driven went from turning inward to gobbling up land in these neighborhoods. So there's an important shift. And that's the shift we're experiencing right now. And they're getting involved in in, in becoming real estate magnates, in effect. That's right, because by um, um, as 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 uh, the head of, of construction of the construction uh, uh interest in New York City said, uh, universities are big business. 
um, um, New York City is the biggest college town, if you will, in the country. And it's largely because construction companies, investment firms can find different ways to invest in university affiliated real estate. They build these um, again, they build these, these this housing for for students, for um, uh, researchers and their families. They build these laboratories. Um, they build these stadiums, these sports stadiums. And if the university can make any case that these are for educational purposes, they remain tax exempt. Now, universities have often, colleges, universities have often been places where uh, student protests. Um, have we seen that uh, in the case of Black Lives Matter and the protests over the killing of George Floyd? Very much so. Um, there were earlier protests. So, for example, when Samuel DuBose was killed in 2015, um, there was a protest there that that um, and and this that was happening right at the moment of, you know, the killing of Tamir Rice and uh, Trayvon Martin and others. So the, the early stages of Black Lives Matter, Michael, Michael Brown. But with the killing of George Floyd, who is, you know, the, in the trial of Derek Chauvin's going on right now, um, many started to call for, you know, um, police reform or police abolition and students and residents in these campus areas began to say, wait a minute, we're talking about campus, we're talking about police in general, but, you know, campus police have been ravaging our neighborhoods for decades. They need to be a part of this conversation. And so right now there are uh, uh, organizations like a national organization called Cops Off Campus. And then in at Northwestern Community Not Cops, um, at University of Chicago, there's Care Not Cops. So what's happening nationally and internationally, you're seeing in a more focused form around campus neighborhoods. And they're arguing, and I'd argue more legitimately, some people have pushed back with the idea of disarming city police, but they, I think, can make the legitimate claim, why are campus police armed? Um, they need to, their, their services of being armed forces should be transitioned over into um, public health services, trauma care, domestic violence services, unarmed public safety, not armed police forces. And, I, and, and I've talked to people across the country, they're saying, you know, the, the calls for um, transitioning city police to becoming these kind of, um, these, these networks of community care, of health care, of trauma services, um, this could be done most easily on campuses because they have these large um, medical centers and public health facilities that the things we're trying to do and call for at, on cities writ large that universities could be the model for that kind of work. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Before I get back to my conversation with Professor DeVarian Baldwin, I'd like to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI. We're asking all of our listeners to step up right now by going online to give to WBAI.org by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and the station on the air in the wake of this terrible pandemic. Again, the number 
516-620-3602 or you can go online to give to wbai.org and one great one great way uh, to support WBAI throughout the year while spreading out your financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or your bank account each month is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And I am delighted to announce that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now will receive a free copy of the book that we are discussing on today's show. In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities, by my guest, Devarian L. Baldwin. But whatever level you are able to show your support for this show and this historic station, it all helps. The important thing is that you take that step right now by calling 516-620-3602 or by going online to give to WBAI.org. If this hour of thoughtful conversation is a part of your daily routine, why not keep it going for someone who may be just discovering it. And you can do that by calling 516-620-3602 by going online to give to WBAI.org to support New York's only 100% listener-supported station. But don't forget to make that tax-deductible contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. And from all of us here at WBAI, thank you. And we return now to my guest, Professor Devarian L. Baldwin, whose latest book is In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. Uh, it is published by Bold Type Books. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, New York is a major city and college town, and you divide, devote a whole chapter to, to New York schools. John Sexton, a Brooklyn native who was the president of NYU from 2003 to 2015, gave a speech which included the phrase fire and ice economies. What was he talking about? Yeah, that's a, that's a uh, I mean, very catchy and ingenious for him. Uh, for years, mostly policy wonks and, and other urbanites had talked about the role that fi uh, fi uh, finance, um, insurance and real estate. So fire had played in anchoring New York City's economy. So, you know, Wall Street, um, insurance companies, real estate developers, et cetera. Um, but he argued that with the rise of optic cables, fi fiber optic cables, those entities have become more mobile and no longer needed to be located within the city. And then he said that as that economic base flees New York City to other more less expensive climes, you still have us, universities, invest in universities. We are the ice economy, um, information, culture and education. So he said in, in a succinct way, you know, ice can stop fire from being put out. And so basically what he's doing is he's making the case for cities and city and city developers and city leaders to invest um, in universities like NYU, Columbia, Fordham, um, et cetera. Um, and this is, the, and he, and he made this kind of the landmark uh, uh, catchphrase of his presidency as he ramped up the expansion of NYU from Washington square to Midtown to Brooklyn and now Abu Dhabi and Shanghai. <laughs> How has uh, NYU's expansion affected the affordable housing needs of Greenwich Village residents? I remember well, Matthew first, Broderick complained. 
<laughs> right. And, and I, you know, he, he got hit really hard for that because he's like, you know, they people like, you know, you're from you, you live in a, a Tony uh, uh, Brownstone and you're the the sex in the city set, which was the response of the lawyers from NYU when he protested. Um, but there still are some significant issues to be made. So in a part of NYU, it's, it's um, you know, super blocks in Washington Square Park area were um, made available to NYU because of the ambitions of Robert Moses in the 1960s, um, who got stopped um, because, you know, protesters um, fought him and stopped his push to put a new highway going right through Washington Square Park. Um, and so Bruce, that got stopped. It's called with, Soho as well. That's right. Uh, it saved right. Soho when people mm-hmm. protested. But Robert Moses seems to be, whenever there seems to be something wrong happening in New York area, uh, Robert Moses' name comes up. That's right. And so he, we're, one of the places where he wanted to put this, this, this um, highway was in the area that, we, that is now Washington Square Park. Hmm. Um, when that didn't happen, um, that became a major part of NYU's campus. And just to be clear, he got stopped by none other than Jane Jacobs um in that area but so that 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 area became a part of washington square park it became the housing for faculty and for residents uh, but it also became some affordable housing as well uh but so so in that process um over time the quirky kind of bohemian you know uh, moniker of the greenwich village greenwich village became one of the most uh powerful and wealthy zip codes and areas in in the country um, and, and they, they were able to fight back when NYU began to encroach in their neighborhoods precisely because in the earlier period, concessions had been made, planning, agree- zoning restrictions and planning agreements had been made to say that, okay, you can have these super, these three super blocks, basically three blocks in one, if you agree to these arrangements to do no more or to do things modestly in this area, to not turn it basically into a college town or, or a company town is what they called it. But then when Sexton came through in the 2000s and wanted to ex- expand out into the Greenwich Village areas, it's precisely what he did. In order to do this, he had to break all types of the agreements that were, um, that were established on, you know, after Moses. Um, and he did so in the name of what happens to NYU will benefit the rest of the city. And well, people we, were outraged. Well, in, in, in that case, uh, it wasn't into uh, uh, neighborhoods where people of color lived. It was uh, most of the, the neighboring uh, areas were rather pricey. Um, That's right. What That's is right. NYU? And that makes it different. And, and in yeah. that book, I, I contrast what happened in Harlem differently than what happened in Greenwich Village. And we'll get to that Columbia, Columbia in a much moment. more easily was able to push basically bulldoze, uh, you know, community authority in Harlem, they had more pushback in Greenwich Village, NYU had more pushback in Greenwich Village. But the problem that they shared is that the political lever that residents hold are the community boards. So in each case, community board two and community board nine, your your listeners will know that very well. But the problem with community boards is they only have advisory power. They don't have enforcement power. And so in both cases, NYU and Columbia were able to run roughshod over the community boards and gain the final approval over from city hall, from city council to push forward their projects. What is NYU 2031? 
NYU 2031, 2031 is the commemoration of their bicentennial, their 200 year anniversary. And this is the plan whereby they're going to add um, the squ- a square foot equivalency of um, the um, Empire State Building. They're going to add that much new square footage onto the, ca- the existing campus uh, in the Greenwich Village area. Um, and so that has already begun, but the project that they tried to create, that they, they named it was NY, by, by 2031, NY 2030, NYU 2031 will be this project to expand and grow the campus. They told these, these, these heartfelt stories about um, dance students having to do recitals in the hallway, about faculty having the, um, the office space of a closet. And, and I was, I'm an alum. And so I got the alumni magazine as they tried to raise money for this NYU 2031 project. So they told this heartfelt story about the need to expand in the name of educational interest. They never used the word real estate, but that's precisely what it was. But it was moving an effort into the East to Village ramp as well. their footprint. What'd you say? They're moving into the East Village as well. And, that's uh, right. And so they, they began to build these, these behemoth residencies that were totally out of scale with the design and the kind of village landscape of the East Village and Greenwich Village. So like, you know, uh, uh, low story buildings, they created these high story buildings that have jetted, jettisoned out of the ground. And they got and, and these NYU residence halls were followed by private companies that now had the green light to do so because you couldn't make the case anymore that there were height restrictions in these areas when the university um, planted the first flag at these 12 and 13 story buildings. And so now if you go into Greenwich Village or into the East Village, um, those residence halls are matched by private company buildings as well at the same heights. And so the landscape has been changed with the university playing the primary role or at least the initial role. Let me say that. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, and my guest is Professor Devarian L. Baldwin. His latest book, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. You mentioned Columbia University. They've expanded into West Harlem, and there's been a lot of tension as a result. Um, has the expansion been halted? No, they... they um were able to push through that expansion with a legal um, protection. So with that story, um, the univer- Columbia University targeted uh, a, a certain area of West Harlem, what some call Manhattanville, for their Manhattanville campus. Um, Harlem residents were outraged because they had their own plan to develop that area. And they wanted to, and they welcomed Columbia to come in and mix with the existing plan. But Columbia didn't want to do that. They wanted the whole area for themselves. They wanted to turn the whole area into an exclusive campus. They didn't want to integrate their campus with affordable housing and commercial development that would benefit the the residents. They wanted the whole area for themselves. And so they were private um, landholders in the area. And the university bought up the lots that were available and let them sit until they became what we call blighted. And then they used the condition of their own properties to make the case that they should be given eminent domain to mm-hmm. go in and buy up all of the properties that were privately owned in the name of the public good. Residents chart were outraged saying, you created blight. 
that you're now using to come in here and make the case to buy up even private properties. Um, and that's precisely what happened in the appellate court. Um, a judge called this rationale by Columbia mere sophistry. But then the higher courts argued that, well, because it's an educational entity and it offers a public good, it yeah. has the right and the rationale to come in and force these private landholders to sell to Columbia in the name of the public good. Now, what does the public good mean in this case? We're talking about, you know, laboratory, research laboratories and law schools and, uh, business, and business school buildings. So in 2004, the legal case of Kilo versus the city of New London helped Columbia with this, this kind of, uh, you know, bait and switch, if you will. Um, previously, to use eminent domain, the properties had to be for public use, like roads, highways, electricity, et cetera. But with the Kilo case, they no, the properties no longer had to be used for public for public um, public use. They just had to be public good. So uh, neighborhood revitalization, tax revenue, um, jobs. And we know that the wealth and revenue that's going to be produced on this campus is not going to trickle down to the residents that might still exist in that neighborhood. But as you said earlier, the residents that were in that neighborhood are facing extreme levels of displacement. As the Columbia campus comes through, investors are coming and following and developers are coming and property values and land values are exploding. And uh, landlords that live in the area are finding ways to remove existing residents to make way for Columbia affiliates. And so even right, if it, money does come from this new development, it's not going to benefit the existing residents because they won't be there anymore. You're right. I'm quoting the New York story highlights the death of public authority that has come with the rise of universities in particular, NYU and Columbia, as dominant power brokers in the city. Uh, well, what about the uh, the city that you work in? Because uh, you're rather critical of, of the situation at your own school, Trinity College in, in Hartford, Connecticut. That's right. And, and, and to be Is fair. Is this book going to cause you trouble? <laughs> that, thank God for tenure, right? I mean, that's the, you know, we still, as long as we still have it. Um, but, you know, to be fair, I've talked to university administ college administrators on my campus. I quote the president. Um, the existing, and and, and it's, there's been a high turnover of presidencies at the campus. And to be fair, she's trying to do things differently. But the legacy of Trinity College as a liberal arts college has been to turn inward, even though it's selectively purchased properties in the neighborhood that's around it for its own interest. And so um, in the name of, you know, urban engagement, there is a downtown campus but what's actually going on on the downtown campus to a higher degree is that the college is trying to compete, uh, is trying to, first of all, put its its students in in connection with, you know, internships in the financial district. Um, it's also trying to capture the certificate market of returning students who work in the corporate sector. Um, so, you know, it, it's using the language of urban engagement to generate another educational market for its own benefits. But has it improved because uh, there was the fencing off of a city street in 1994 that right. exacerbated longstanding issues between Trinity and, and the city of Hartford. Right. And, I, and I've been calling for and that, and that, and that fence still exists and that street is still private. 
And, mm. you know, I hope this book becomes an opportunity, you know, while the school and other schools are reckoning with their racial past and calling for anti-racism, diversity, equity, inclusion, I'm saying to schools everywhere, look at your physical footprint. Are there ways in which your diversity issues or, or efforts can be rectified by, for example, taking down that fence? I hope they do so. And we have the possibility of doing so. And in and, and the time that remains, I just want to say that people have responded to this work in, in, in sometimes in overly facile ways saying, well, you're criticizing the university. So should we not have universities? And so the, the, this kind of either or language of either we have universities that they currently exist or are you saying we, don't, we shouldn't have universities at all? That's a very facile approach to the conversation. There, are, there's, there is a, a gulf of opportunities in between those two polarities. There are so many things that universities can do and be. And we don't have much time, but uh, you in the, in the few minutes that we have left, yeah. uh, let's talk about uh, what happened a few years ago when you gave a lecture at the University of Winnipeg about the increased role that colleges and universities have been playing in cities. Uh, they have uh, an innovative approach, don't they? Uh, they do. Practical, it's, it's, practical it's not without uh, model its problems. Reform. It's, it's, it's not without its own problems. Let me be clear about that. I mean, their approach to, to university development came out of residential protests and outrage when they built campus buildings with their backs facing the, the community. But to their credit, they listened to that outrage. And with their president in the 1990s, Lloyd Axworthy, they created a new vision of sustainability at the time when their student demographic was shifting from white suburbanites to um, urban uh, first generation Canadians or new Canadians, immigrants and indigenous residents who lived in the surrounding areas. And because they had a new demographic to serve, they made the response of doing things a little bit differently. They built mixed housing that includes um, uh, premium rate, market rate, affordable rate and uh, rent gear to income rates that includes both students and residents. And it also includes childcare behind childcare options, not for everyone, but childcare options behind the residence halls. This has all been done with their own development corporation. They, they kicked out um, one of the you know, food service multinationals like Marriott, Sedesco, Aramark, Mar uh, um, you know, those uh, Chartwells. They had one of those at their food service entity. They kicked them out and created their own food service company called Diversity Foods. And I walked through the kitchen and I was amazed. So 65% of the workers at the, in, this, in this kitchen come from marginalized, what they call marginalized communities. So uh, uh, first uh, uh, new Canadians, recently incarcerated, LGBTQ residents, uh, uh, single mothers, 65% of, of their employees come from those communities. And they're in the efforts of making this a profit sharing entity. So they would all hold prop shares in the entity. That's the effort. And then on the, on the sustainability side, 65% um, of their materials come from local farms within a hundred kilometer radius. And they have um, compost bins next to each cooking station and they send their cooking oil off to be converted into biodiesel. So that's what they do. That can happen here. But to be fair, activists and faculty members in Winnipeg said that's not even enough. So Jim Silver said most indigenous residents will not come downtown to go to school. So he took his school, his school of urban 
uh, studies and moved it to the indigenous north end to create an educational outpost in the middle of an indigenous community without the blessing of the university. He didn't get support from the university. He got state money, or I'm sorry, uh, province money, we're in Canada, province money, to do this on his own because he felt that even with all the great things that the downtown campus is doing, it wasn't even enough. So he's doing that in the North End community with housing and childcare at affordable rates and educational services for the local indigenous communities that's connected to high school work. Right in the heart, they took an old um, um, heroin shooting den that had one time been a single room occupancy um, hotel and they turned it into a multi-use educational complex. I got Universities there, unfortunately. can do all these things. They can do all this. We pretty much run out of time, but my great thanks to Devarian L. Baldwin, uh, urbanist, historian, cultural critic, the Paul E. Rather Distinguished Professor of American Studies and founding director of the Smart Cities Lab at Trinity College uh, in Hartford. Uh, His latest book is In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. It is published by uh, Bold Type Press. It's been a great pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Todd McGovern for preparing the interview you just heard. And to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and my executive producer, Jesse Lent, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you've just discovered this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you do get your podcast from iTunes, why not leave us a rating or a review? It's a great way to let others know about this show. I'm assuming you're going to give us a good review, of course. There are also links to our all of our past shows at our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. And if you uh, want to email me, uh, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. As I mentioned earlier, WBAI finds itself in a very difficult position because of the pandemic. So if you value the kind of informative one-hour deep dives into one subject that we bring you on the show weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Please go online right now to give to WBAI.org or go uh, or call 516-620-3602 to play your part in. And if you become a BAI buddy, as I said earlier, to the tune of 10 or $15 a month, we're happy to send you a free copy of the book that we've been discussing in the shadow of the ivory tower, how universities are plundering our cities. But you have to do it in the name of of Leonard Lopate at large. Uh, We hope that you'll join us tomorrow when I'll be playing some of my favorite Easter songs from the golden age of gospel in in anticipation of Good Friday. We'll see you then.